You're listening to teaching from the Castle Hills Christian Church in San Antonio, Texas. More information about Castle Hills Christian Church is available at chccsa.com. Many of you know that my father passed away on February 13th, and uh, I appreciate all the kind words and generous uh, responses that we've gotten from our church family and our friends in general. I was just sharing with one of you earlier that uh, the letter you wrote was really inspiring to me. You know who you are, and, but it was really powerful to kind of hear those words and to read them. And as I was traveling back uh, to North Carolina where I grew up, uh, one of the things I was thinking about pretty frequently was, you know, what is it that really makes a good friend? What is it that makes a deep lasting friendship connection? Because if we're honest, uh, maintaining healthy friendships can be pretty difficult. I was reading about a survey pretty recently where they did like a 20-year comparison, and uh, after 20 years, people were three times less likely to say that they felt like they had someone to confide in. Uh, A lot of us are are lonely and isolated, and we have a difficult time maintaining good, healthy, long-term friendships. So what is it that makes a good friendship? Is it the things that we have in common, the the shared experiences, the common outlook, or is it the way that we complement each other through our differences? What is it that makes a strong friendship? We've all seen the humor that can be found when watching two people who are complete opposites try to get along. Uh, Things like The Odd Couple or like Woody and Buzz from Toy Story. And, and when we watch these things, when we see these kind of things play out on screen or in different stories we read or encounter, most of us are kind of secretly rooting that they'd get along, right? We love seeing the conflict and all the tension that comes from them being so different, you know, the one throwing the trash on the floor and the other constantly scrubbing things with a toothbrush and what's gonna happen? One being really technology forward and the other one being kind of stuck But we want them to succeed as friends because we know that differences can make a beautiful friendship, that there can be complementary skills and talents and and things that come together that really drive a friendship to succeed. We're in this series called All In, Follow the Leader, and we've been looking at the lives of some of Jesus' closest followers, the inner 12. And a lot of these apostles who followed Jesus seemed to have connections or friendships with one another before they began following Jesus. They were, a lot of them were fishermen, they had sort of a a common growing up in nearby villages and were were doing similar sort of professions. And and today, we're going to look at two people who seem to have been friends before they met Jesus. It's Philip and Nathaniel. Now, there's several Philips that are mentioned in the New Testament, so I want to make sure we're we're clear and we have the right one. There's Philip the Tetrarch, which was kind of like a governor. This isn't that guy. Uh, there's Philip from the book of Acts, who was one of the seven deacons that were chosen at the Church of Jerusalem. Um, and he's the one who kind of evangelizes Samaria and becomes kind of a, an important figure in the early church. And that's not this guy. This is Philip the Apostle. And he's mentioned about 15 times in the New Testament. Nathaniel, the, the other friend that we're going to talk about today, is only mentioned by name seven times in the New Testament. And all of those are from the Gospel of John, and six of those, uh, of the nine verses, are the ones we're going to look at today uh, in our, our passage in, from John chapter 1. Now, there is another uh, person named among the apostles named Bartholomew, and it's likely that this is the same person. Uh, Bartholomew means son of Ptolemy in Aramaic, um, so it's kind of like a last name. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you were called by your last name. I know on my soccer team uh, in high school, that's how it was. Hamilton, get over here and do this, right? 
So Bartholomew is most likely Nathaniel, and he's only mentioned one time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, and these are all just in the list of the apostles. So we don't have a whole lot of information uh, to go on, but what is interesting is almost always Philip and Nathaniel or Philip and Bartholomew are named together in these lists. One of my good friends growing up, his name was Mark, and Mark actually came in and, and visited with me um, after my, my father's funeral and spent some time with me. And when Mark and I were in middle school and high school, you didn't say one of our names without saying the other, right? Was, there's Richard and Mark. There's Mark and Richard. And just everywhere we went, we were together. Um, in fact, uh, we played on the high school soccer team together, but when we first met, he didn't play soccer. He started doing that because of me. There were uh, activities that I got involved with because of Mark. We became sort of like one odd pairing personality. And everywhere we went, we were inseparable. And it seems to be that Philip and Nathaniel have this kind of relationship. So we're going to look at these two friends, and, and the insight we get from this one story I think is pretty powerful. The most information we have about them is from John chapter 1, starting in verse 43, and I'm just going to read through to verse 51. This is what it says. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. This is after he had called some of his other followers. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, you were under a fig tree. I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you that I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, in this short story, this one encounter of Philip and Nathaniel having their first encounters with Jesus, we find really quickly that Philip is what I like to call a seeker. Philip was a seeker. Now, what's interesting, though, is who found who in the story, right? Verse 43 says this, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and then Jesus found Philip, and Jesus said to Philip, follow me. But when we get down to verse 45, listen to how Philip tells the story. Philip told Nathanael, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So who found who? Who was it that discovered who? Did Philip discover Jesus or did Jesus discover, discover Philip? See, I, I think what's really interesting here is that Philip was a seeker. Most likely, he was one of the people who was around John the Baptist and was, was looking for God to do something, was expecting God to sort of break into the world in a dramatic way. See, the people here in Judea and Galilee had been ruled and oppressed by one imperial power after another for centuries. And 
different Israelite groups became anxious for God to intervene, and they had different expectations of what this might be, but they knew that they were on the cusp of something big. And John, the Baptist, goes out into the wilderness, and he's baptizing people, and he's talking about God sending someone. People even question him, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah? And John was like, no, I'm not any of these things. But the people who were following John the Baptist, they had this expectation that they were getting ready to experience something. So Philip was a seeker who was out just looking for God to move in the world. His friend Nathaniel has a little different response, though. Look at what he says in verse 46, because Nathaniel was a skeptic. Nathaniel said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth. Now, I want to be clear. When we use the word skeptic, in our world, in our culture, we have some very specific things in mind, right? We have these ideas of people like Richard Dawkins or even like uh, David Hume from philosophy, and, and Nathaniel was not that type of skeptic. He didn't doubt the potential of the miraculous, and he was not going through trying to deny uh, the supernatural. But we find later that Nathaniel has a very specific expectation of what God was going to be doing in the world. He expected God to be sending a new king. But here's the reality. Kings don't come from Nazareth. I don't know what it's like where you grow up, where you grew up, but like the town I grew up in, there's no expectation that the president of the United States is going to come from Elizabeth City, North Carolina, right? Maybe some of you can kind of share that. Maybe you're from a small town or an insignificant place or a place where you didn't have a lot of opportunities. And when someone says, oh, where are you from? And you tell them, you have to start describing it by what it's next to. And when they start asking you about your experiences growing up, you have to kind of translate it into like the language of living in a big city. But that's what it's like for me growing up because where I came from, you didn't have a huge expectation that there was going to be some grand life experience. And when Nathaniel hears where Jesus is from, he's like, I don't believe anything of value can come from Nazareth. See, the extent of Jesus' humanity initially stumped Nathaniel because kings don't come from Nazareth. But what I think is really key here is to see what Philip does when Nathaniel expresses his doubt. He simply responds, come and see. Come and see. See, what I want you to know is that your questions and your doubts and your skepticism are welcome here. Your skepticisms and your doubts and your questions are welcome at Castle Hills Christian Church. And beyond that, I want you to know that your skeptical friends are welcome here at Castle Hills Christian Church. But come and see is not just an invitation to church. Come and see is an invitation for skeptics to experience Jesus for themselves. Come and see is an invitation to come alongside you and experience Jesus with you. See, Philip tells Nathaniel, you have doubts. The extent of Jesus' humanity is a stumbling block for you right now. I'm not going to try to answer all your questions. I'm not going to debate you about this. I just want you to come. And I'm going to introduce you to Jesus. And I'm going to be there with you. And I want you to see for yourself Jesus of Nazareth. 
So the question becomes, where is it in your life, where is it today that your skeptical friends can encounter Jesus? It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul was a, a pretty well-spoken guy. He wrote much of the New Testament. I don't think anyone would question his intelligence, but this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we are preaching to save those that are lost. Do you catch that? The gospel of Jesus, the message of the cross, God's love through the person of Jesus seem like folly, mistake, unreasonableness, silliness. And yet it's through this message of weakness, through this unreasonable message, that Paul was able to evangelize the world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. So where can your skeptical friends encounter Jesus? For the most part, it's not going to be through you debating them. It's not going to be through you analyzing all the apologetic series you can and having answers to all their questions. Your skeptical friends will encounter Jesus when they see you avoiding gossip at work. Your skeptical friends will encounter Jesus when you take care of your elderly neighbor. Your skeptical friends will encounter Jesus when you take care of a friend and you're there for them when they're going through a divorce or the loss of a loved one. Your skeptical friends will encounter Jesus when you are volunteering in our community. They will encounter Jesus when you're welcoming to the outcast in your office and in your neighborhood and you're reaching out to those who are hurting and lost and broken in the world around us. When you invite your skeptical friends to experience Jesus, you need to do it with love and with empathy because that is where they encounter Jesus. I was recently on a college campus here in town with a group of Christians, and we were just inviting people to have conversations with us. And one of the professors from the college came up and wanted to engage in dialogue. And you could tell that they had had some bad experiences with Christianity and with the church. Because out, they come out the door just blade like, why are Christians so bad? Why are they so evil? Why is it that so many Christians have done so many violent acts over the years? Why is it that Christians are endorsing so many unloving practices in our world? And you could just see the look on these college kids, these Christian college kids' faces. They were like, uh, like, how do I do this? So I just kind of stepped in, got the guy's name. And when he said, why is it that Christians have done so many bad things? I was like, yeah, you know, Christians have done some bad things. You know, I've been hurt by Christians before, and it was painful. And I've experienced when Christians are unloving. And it's really awful. And you know what? I've been on the other end of that too. I've been an unloving Christian before. And I just need to apologize for when Christians have mistreated you. Because obviously you've experienced something that is very different from the Jesus we read about in the Bible. In the Christians that you've encountered in church. Now, I gave the guy my email address, and I've never heard from him since. And I, I don't know that this is the beginning of his conversion story. Probably isn't. But just trying to be empathetic. At, at the end of our conversation, he thanked me. 
And he said, man, I, I wish I could experience more Christians like you. And I was like, I want you to do that too. Come and see. Just come and experience Jesus with me because I believe that when skeptics encounter Jesus for themselves, their lives can be changed. Now, I want, to no- want you to notice how Jesus responded to Nathaniel's skepticism here because this is important. John chapter 1, verse 47 Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. When he sees this person who has doubted him, and he knows he has doubted him, he doesn't respond like I would tend to do. Oh, you don't believe me, huh? I heard what you said to Philip. Talking trash about my hometown? Where are you from, man? Right? No, he doesn't respond that way. Instead, he reaches out with generosity. This is a man you can trust. He's got no deceit. He's honest. And he's really pursuing the truth. When Nathaniel personally encountered Jesus, his doubts were erased. Like, there was no question in his mind anymore who Jesus was. It didn't matter where he came from or who his family was or what his educational background was. It may not have fit his neat little idea of what a king should be, but he knew that Jesus was the real deal. Because when Nathaniel personally encountered Jesus, when he came with Philip and he saw for himself who Jesus was, it quieted his doubts. So what would happen... If everyone here committed to praying for their friends and family who either aren't followers of Jesus, have walked away from the church, or don't have a church to be connected to. What would happen if everyone here was willing to be humble and honest about not always having the answers and trusted that Jesus was enough for themselves and their family and their friends? What would happen if everyone here committed to finding opportunities to experience Jesus firsthand in their day-to-day lives? And what would happen if everyone here committed to bringing people to church to experience God's love from a family of believers? I I believe that God has equipped us, has positioned us at just the right moment to allow people to come and see and experience for themselves what God's love really is. And I believe that as a church, we are positioned perfectly to be a place where people who have doubts, who have walked away from church, who, who have, are skeptical of who Jesus is or what Jesus is doing in their lives, to come and experience Jesus. And it doesn't just happen in these walls. It happens when we're unleashed into our families into our communities, into our workplaces, into our neighborhoods, into our community with the love of Jesus. When we start our next series, we're actually going to be asking you to participate in something we're going to call one-to-one. And all we're asking is that you think about and intentionally pray for and be mindful of one person in your life that you need to invite to come and see Jesus for themselves. One person in your life that you want to commit to praying for on a regular basis because you know that their life would be changed by an experience of Jesus. One person. 
Now, I think sometimes the, the idea of evangelizing, of sharing our faith has gotten a bad rep because we do have this, this desire to want to win people and have them understand who God is. But the invitation to Nathaniel was not one of quieting all of his doubts and answering all his questions. Instead, it was just one of simply, come and see. And you're going to be asked to, to embrace that in your own life. What does it look like for you to invite one person to come and see Jesus in your life. And I believe when we take seriously the lessons we learn from these initial followers of Jesus, when we're all in on following Jesus the way some of these men were, that our lives will be changed, that our relationships will be healthier and stronger, and that we will be able to share God's love, not because we're so amazing and our words are always right and we always have the answers, but because we truly understand that Jesus is enough. You don't have to be enough because Jesus is enough. You don't have to have all the right answers because Jesus is the truth. You don't have to know all the right things to do because Jesus is the way and the life. And it's my prayer that we as a church will begin to follow God's leading, to boldly share God's love in our lives with those around us.